by way of radio. We're in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Daniel chapter 9 is one of those towering chapters of the scripture. It's one of those landmark prophetic chapters. I know you've heard me say stuff like this a lot, but it really is one of my favorite chapters. It has opened up understanding to me beyond my wildest dreams of God's plan for the future. It's like Mount Rushmore or the Eiffel Tower or some great landmark that when you hear it, you go, oh yes, Daniel 9. It's got all that great stuff about prophecy. And indeed it does, but it's not only the key to prophecy, it's the key to praying. If you just glance over the chapter, you notice that the first 23 verses deal with Daniel's personal prayer life. And this morning, as well as next Sunday, we're going to be talking about prayer. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, catch our breath with all the prophecy that we've dealt with about Antiochus Epiphanes and Alexander the Great and Cyrus the Persian and the sacrifices stopping and all of those prophetic things and historical things and deal on a very personal level with the prayer of Daniel and our own personal prayer life. Now, I know that every time you mention prayer, there are those who kind of white-knuckle their seats. They go, uh-oh, I hate messages on prayer because our guilt meter starts going bonkers. We realize, you know, my prayer life is the one area that it's just not what it should be. I could really use a lot of tuning up in prayer, and I always feel convicted and guilty when I hear a message on prayer. Well, I hope that you feel encouraged, not guilty. I hope that after reading the book of Daniel, chapter 9, this week and next week, you'll be fired up. After all, what higher privilege could you have than talking to God? It'd be great to say, you know, I... I talked to a congressman or a senator or the president this week. Yeah, I talked to God this week. He's the big one, the big guy, the one who made everything, the creator of the heavens and the earth. So we're going to look, first of all, this morning at the first five verses of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Not only is God willing to listen to your prayers, God responds to your prayers. I don't quite understand this fully, how that sovereign God is moved by the prayers of human beings, but it's true. When you pray, things happen. It might not always happen like you want them to happen, but things do happen. God does respond to your prayer. In fact, skip ahead to verse 20. While I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. 
And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now here Daniel is praying. And before he could even finish and say, Amen, he was interrupted by the answer. Wouldn't that be a great way to pray? You couldn't even finish your prayer. You're just getting it out of your mouth. And it's answered even as you're praying it. Well, that's what happened with Daniel. It's interesting to me, secular studies, non-Christian people have noticed the difference that prayer makes. Christian prayer makes. A lot of articles have been written, Time, Newsweek, USA Today, all about the habits that Americans have in their prayer lives. But there's an interesting article that was given to me from a magazine called Longevity Magazine. Interesting name for a magazine. I think Christians could write that one. After all, we have everlasting life. But Longevity Magazine, 1994 of March, had an article called Why Prayer May Be Good Medicine. Now listen to this article. I'll quote a portion of it to you. A study of 393 cardiac patients done during the mid-1980s at San Francisco General Hospital by cardiologist Randolph C. Bird suggests that asking God for help gets results. The names of about half of the patients were given to born-again Christians who prayed for them. Neither the physicians nor the patients knew who was getting prayerful support. The patients who were prayed for fared better. They needed fewer antibiotics and less mechanical support for breathing. Now the article went on and talked about supposed miracles of healing that had taken place and they were trying to figure out, you know, how could this happen and isn't it interesting? And of course, some of you have your own testimonies of how God has done that. But the article going on said, Prayer might even answer our national prayers for lower hospital bills. One study last summer at a medical center in Massachusetts showed that cardiac patients who got a daily visit from a hospital chaplain that included prayer time by this chaplain left the hospitals two days earlier than other patients. Now, I share that not so that you think, hey, great way to save money, I'll pray. Prayer is never to become a self-serving kind of an activity. Let's not reduce it to that. I don't think prayer means that you're supposed to claim anything and everything you want, tack Jesus' name on the end of it, and expect things to happen. The purpose of prayer is not to get your will done in heaven, but God's will done on the earth. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth even as it is in heaven. I was given another article. It's not really a reliable source. It's from a tabloid rag magazine in a supermarket. But it shows you how other people view prayer. It says, Holy Scriptures show you how to lose weight fast. Now, I don't know if you can read, especially some of you up front, the headlines of this article. Can you read that? It says, Bible prayers to flush out body fat. I'm sure this thing sold a lot of, lot of them. And uh, in little kind of a capsulated star, it says, 
eat all you want and still lose 10, 20, 30 pounds or more. A slim new you for the summer, guaranteed. Isn't it just like man to reduce some holy thing like prayer to the base level, the low level of just a self-serving exercise? Great. You mean I can lose weight while I pray? I'll be a prayer warrior. You kidding? I'll sign up for that prayer room. No problem if that's what's going to happen. Let's we'll lose 20 pounds tonight. Let's go pray. It's not the purpose for prayer. Now, it might happen, but I think there's other ways, like watching what you eat and exercise. But um, let's look at Daniel's prayer. First verse, I want to draw your attention, actually sort of as an overview of all these verses. Daniel's preoccupation with prayer. Daniel's preoccupation with prayer. We're going to look at four brief things about the life and the prayer of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, which is 538 B.C., I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer, supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. You open up Daniel 9, and you're introduced to a guy who reads his Bible and prays. Now, this is not the first time. And that's why I make a point out of this, because Daniel's preoccupation of his life was spiritual activity. Remember back in chapter 2, he's a teenager. King Nebuchadnezzar, the present king of Babylon at that time, had a dream that bugged him. He called for all of the wise guys in the kingdom to interpret the dream. They couldn't do it. He finally said, interpret my dream or I'll kill you. They said, fine, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it meant. He said, that's too easy. Tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what it meant. Nobody can do that. Fine, then I'll kill you. Heads off to you. Not hats off to you. Heads off to you. Your head. So the decree was signed that every Chaldean wise man, soothsayer, fortune teller, would have his head cut off. Daniel heard about it. Let's look at what he does. Daniel chapter 2. Let's just kind of get a brush up on background. Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 17 with me, please. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. I wonder if they can hear that over the radio. It's a sweet sound. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. During World War II, there was a sign outside the front of a church as the bombs were being dropped and leveling London and people were filled with fear. The sign said, if your knees knock, kneel on them. Daniel believed in that philosophy. It was a scary time. His life was at stake. What should we do? Well, let's pray. That's what we ought to do. We better have a prayer meeting right here and now or we won't see the light of day. So they did. God answered his prayer. Then we come to chapter 6 which is the chronological time frame of chapter 9. It's the reign of King Darius the Mede, around 538 B.C. And all of his buddies are so jealous because Daniel is being promoted. 
that they decide to have a decree signed that anyone praying to any other god but the Babylonian's god gets thrown into the den of lions. Let's look at what Daniel does once again. Chapter 6, in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with the windows toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Daniel did it as a teenager. Daniel did it as he was growing older. And we find him once again in chapter 9, dividing or devoting the first 23 verses of chapter 9 to his prayer before God. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up for a very encouraging purpose. A testimony, like Daniel's testimony, brings more glory to God, perhaps, than any other kind of testimony of somebody who started young with the Lord and kept following Him and ended up as an old man still following through with the commitment He made as a young lad. Now, I know we love to hear dramatic testimonies. We ooh and ah at the alcoholic or the drug addict or the thief or the axe murderer turned Christian. You know, we like to shudder in our seats. He did that. Ooh, wow. Tell me more. But to me, the greatest testimony is not, I was horrible and I turned to Christ. Listen, that's a great testimony. We're all sinners. But to hear of somebody who said, when I was a young kid, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and I kept following Him all through my life. You say, how is that a greater testimony? Because it testifies of God's keeping power. That when you commit your life to Christ, He can keep you solid. Teenage, middle life, and all the way up into the end, Daniel made that commitment despite peer pressure, no doubt. I heard a wonderful story recently of kids that converged upon Washington, D.C. and publicly before God and men made a commitment that they would remain chaste without giving themselves away sexually, that they would save themselves for their marriage partner later on in life. What a great commitment that is. And what a great present to give to a spouse when you get married. I've saved myself for you. I made a commitment before God and men, and God gave me the power and the strength to keep that commitment. So I want to encourage those of you who are younger. You made a commitment when you were young in a church. Maybe you're at a stage in your life where there's a lot of peer pressure. Your friends are saying, ah, don't be so square. Don't be so... Well, what's the term today? I don't know what it is. Square, straight, weird, goofy, whatever. Don't be so religious. Loosen up a little bit. You might be tempted to compromise. Don't compromise. Serve the Lord. Don't swerve from the Lord. You might listen to the advice of Solomon, who tried everything. And when he was older, he said to the young people, he said, Seek now your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, My soul has no pleasure in them. Before you get to be old, seek the Lord while you're young, in other words. Why? You have your whole life ahead of you. Dwight L. Moody had a great way of looking at conversions. One night he came home from an evangelistic crusade at his church, or an evangelistic evening, gave an altar call. His wife said, Dwight, 
How many got saved tonight? He said, two and a half people got saved tonight. She said, what do you mean two and a half? You mean, of course, two adults and a kid. He said, no, 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 two kids and one adult. Because those kids have their whole life. They haven't wasted half their life on the world like many adults have. And then turn, they started young. Daniel started young. And that testimony of a consistent life, he was preoccupied with the things of God. And what impresses me about that is that he had every reason not to be so spiritual. Think about it. Daniel had every conceivable reason to backslide into compromise. He was taken from his home, from his place of worship, his church. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, 586 B.C. He's placed in a foreign land without significant fellowship. He didn't have a kinship. He didn't have Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel. You say, yeah, but he had his three friends only when he was a young teenager. The Bible records nothing of fellowship after those early years. He was placed in a hostile, secular environment. People who didn't love his God, in fact, persecuted him for loving his God. And he didn't compromise. You say, is it possible to stay true and to be a Christian in the midst of a hostile environment like this world? Well, look at Daniel's life. I'd say that's pretty hostile as I read the book of Daniel. But he didn't compromise. He was preoccupied with prayer and preoccupied with the Word. You know, I find that many people are preoccupied with things other than the Lord. In fact, everything else besides God. I know many so-called Christians that say they believe in God and love God, but they're preoccupied with other things in their life. They compartmentalize God. They have a little God box. kind of goes like this. I've got my work, I've got my family, I've got my fun, and I've got my God. And they're all in my little boxes, and never the twain shall meet. I won't bring God out of my box for my work or for my family or for my leisure. I take God out, of course, once a week on Sunday morning. That's his place, you know. We call this the Lord's Day, right? Well, it's Sunday. Got to do the God thing. Take God out of the box. Let's go to church. No, it's not the Lord's Day. Every day is the Lord's Day. This is the day the Lord has made, David said. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. That's every day. God will not tolerate living in a compartment that you just take him out whenever you want him and sort of rub the bottle to get whatever you want. Oh, Lord, I have a need now. Let me take you out of the box. He wants to be the Lord of all in your life. Daniel lived that way. I read that a typical American who lives 75 years in percentages will live 39% of his life working. 28% of his time hanging out, time off, leisure, personal time. 18% of his life will be retirement. 12% of your life will be in school. So it's really not all that bad, is it, kids? 8% of your life in preschool, 0.9% in church. It's the average American, 0.9% in church. Now contrast that with what the Bible says about loving the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. How much is all? All is all one hour a week. God, stay over there, would you? I'll get you out on Sunday. No, he wants to be... In fact, you could, you could say a Christian is somebody who's preoccupied with God. That's a Christian. 
He's got Jesus on the brain. You say, uh, Skip, you're describing now a religious fanatic. You know, young Christians, they just become Christians. They get all excited at first. These are religious fanatics. Well, maybe a religious fanatic is simply your description of somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Daniel was preoccupied in Babylon with his God. Now let's look in verse 2. We saw Daniel's preoccupation with prayer all through his life. It was the habit, his custom since early days. In verse 2, we see Daniel's promptings in prayer. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then, that's significant, then I set my face toward the Lord to make request by prayer. What caused his prayer life? Reading the Bible. He was sitting there in his quiet time. He had the scroll of Jeremiah open. Maybe he had a cup of Babylonian coffee. I don't know. Can't really say that dogmatically. But he was reading the Bible. He came upon a promise. And that promise triggered his prayer life. In fact, let me read that to you in the New English Bible. I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures and reflecting upon them. You know what's fascinating to me? is that as spiritual a guy as Daniel was, he never thought he was too spiritual to read the Bible and to do Bible study. I mean, after all, God spoke directly to Daniel. He had visions, dreams about the future like no one else in Scripture had. God spoke directly to him. He could have said, I don't need to read the Scriptures. I get rhema revelation, don't you know? God speaks directly to me. I'm not like the little peons who have to do Bible study. God speaks directly to me. Here goes. He read the Bible. He disciplined himself and realized that seven days without reading the Bible makes one week. W-E-A-K. He would be weakened if he didn't read it. It says he was reading Jeremiah. Well, what was he reading exactly? Two scriptures come to mind. Jeremiah 25, verse 10 and 11. Let me read it to you. The whole land. Now, as I read this to you, picture Daniel coming upon this scripture. They've been in Babylon almost 70 years. He's in his mid-80s at this point. He opens up the scroll and he reads these words. The whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Don't you know he got so fired up? Seventy years. Why? Seventy years is about up. That's like right now. And maybe he read down the scroll a little bit to what we call Jeremiah 29, which says, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. It was reading that scripture that 70 years would be completed and then they would go back to the land that caused Daniel to pray. He read the Bible, he saw the promise, he believed it, and he started seeking God. 
nobody would have to say, Daniel, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? I mean, just by what he wrote, you'd see that he does. He believed that 70 years were literally 70 years that it was the Word of God that he could expect to be going home or at least the decree would be signed for the Jews to return home at any moment. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, you know what, folks? If Daniel would have lived in 1994, and let's say he took out a full-page ad in a local newspaper, or better yet, a national newspaper, and let's say the circumstances were the same, and he said... You know, the Bible says that after 70 years, we're going to be going home. 70 years is almost up. We're going to be going home. The Bible said it. God promised it. It's going to happen. I'm sure next week in the newspaper, you'd see a little editorial accusing Daniel of being a right-wing, fundamentalist, wacko, evangelistic, not politically correct, dodo bird. After all, people that believe this book is really the Word of God, can you believe it? Yet, many people who accuse Christians of being outdated because we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that this is the Word of God without error, some of these same people say, well, I'm a Christian. Excuse me? You're a Christian? Well, of course, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in all the Bible. Well, then you don't believe in the Jesus I believe in. You cannot take Jesus seriously without taking this book seriously. You go, you're being too dogmatic. No, I'm quoting what Jesus said. He said, not one stroke of the pen will pass from this book, the law, till all of these things are fulfilled. He quoted the Old Testament time and time again, including Jonah and the whale, as something historical and something accurate. He believed in it literally. If you say you take Jesus seriously, you will take the Bible seriously. Daniel did. He said, 70 years, this is not allegorical, this is going to happen at any moment. And you know what? It did. A little bit later on we read that the Jews were set free and they were able to go home. Now, back to our point. His preoccupation was prayer. The prompting of his prayer was the Word of God. He read a scripture, it caused him to pray. This could be the secret for some of you who are experiencing dryness in your prayer life. Your communication with God's a little dry and dusty, not what it could be. You're wondering, how could I spice it up? Here's the secret. By letting the Bible be your cue for what you ought to pray for. You know, so oftentimes when we pray, we remember stale phrases, overused phrases, and we tack them onto our prayers because we think they sound right, they sound good. We don't even think sometimes. How many times have we said, Oh, Lord, bless, lead, guide, and direct? Amen. What is that? Have you thought about it? You, do, you can do the same thing with the Lord's Prayer. Our oh, Father, who art in heaven, I'll be thy name, the kingdom come, the will be others. Hey, you're addressing God here. You should think about what you're saying. We can teach our children some bad habits by not really making it meaningful. This is a true story. There's... A kid who goes to this fellowship. And he heard, tacked on to the end of many prayers throughout his early life, and everyone agreeing say, Amen. He didn't understand what was going on, and he went to his mother one day. This is true. And she she said, Mommy, how come it's only people wearing green? What? She said. Yeah, how come you say, and everyone in green? And then he said, And why do we say 80 men? Why not 70 men? Why is it 80 men at the end of a prayer? 
she realized this poor kid has heard this thing repeated so many times so quickly, he didn't even pick up on it. She said, it's everything, everyone agreeing with the prayer, not in green, agreeing. Say, amen. He goes, oh. Oh, if the scripture could prompt your prayer, how different your prayers would be. I want to make that principle live for just a moment. George Mueller. If you want to read a fascinating life of prayer and faith, I mean one that will rivet you to your seats, read the life of George Mueller. Started the Bristol Orphanages in England in the 1800s. Trusted God for everything, and God came through. Time would fail us to go into all the examples, but this is what he said about prayer. Notice. It has pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, the benefit of which I have not lost for more than 14 years. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do is to give myself to the reading of the Word of God, not prayer first, but the Word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the Word of God, so that it passes through my mind as water through a pipe, but considering what I read, pondering it, applying it to my heart, to meditate on it, that thus my heart might be comforted and encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed. That by thus, by means of the word of God, while meditating on it, my heart would be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. He said that prayer is the most effective after the inner man has been nourished on the meditation of the word of God. In other words, I read a promise, I read a warning, I read a commandment, And automatically I respond back to the Lord based upon what I have just read. I personalize it. I pray back those principles. I ask God to help me live those principles. Other greats through history have found this to be true. Did you know George Whitfield, the evangelist during the Great Awakening, used to have his quiet time opening the Bible on his knees? He was ready for action. He knew that something in the Word would prompt him in his prayer life. So we see the promptings of Daniel's prayer. Now let's look in verse 3 at Daniel's pursuit of prayer. And I draw your attention to a key phrase. Then I set my face toward the Lord God. I set my face. An interesting phrase. Hard to translate that. I looked it up in Hebrew this week. And I was delighted as to find what this meant. The word, I set my face, is the Hebrew word Nathan. It's my son's name. I Nathaned my face would be literally the Hebrew. Natan means to give deliberately. And if I was to give you what I think is the best translation, if I were to do that, it would be this. I have decided to deliberately focus and concentrate upon God in my prayer life. I'm going to press in with intensity and commitment and resoluteness and concentration. Now, have you found, like me, that to concentrate in prayer is difficult? To me, it's very, very difficult. Let me tell you. I can do almost anything without breaking my concentration. For some reason, I open my Bible or I pray, 
And I think of all sorts of other ideas. Oh, that's a great idea. I should write that down. I should go do that. Or the phone will ring or the doorbell will ring. It's, it's, in fact, it's, it's amazing how often this happens. Why does it happen? Because Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. He sees you not standing in your own strength, tapping into God's resources, full red alert in hell. Get this guy, stop praying. That is his undoing. So the fiery darts come in because that's your power source as you're pursuing the Lord in prayer. There's a story of a young boy who wanted to learn how to pray simply because he was watching an older gentleman at the banks of a river who seemed very contented, very resolute in his prayer, very contented, filled with joy. The young boy interrupted the old man said, Sir, would you teach me to pray? He said, Are you sure, son? Yes, I'm sure. Would you teach me to pray? I notice your contentment. He said, You sure about that? You want me to teach you to pray? Yes, sir. The old man took the boy by the scruff of the hair and put his head under the water, keeping it under there for some time. The young boy was flailing his arms, trying to breathe and get oxygen. Finally, after a period of time, the old man released his grip and brought the young kid up. The young kid was shocked. Why would you do that? The old man smiled. That's your first lesson. What do you mean? He said, young man, when you long to pray as you longed to breathe while your head could get no oxygen, then I'll be able to teach you to pray. You've got to long for it. It's got to be something that's not just routine. It's not just bless this food. It's something that's from your heart. It's something that you pursue. I set my face in resoluteness and concentration to seek the Lord. Now let me ask you a series of questions. What is your pursuit in life? Your master pursuit? What thing do you concentrate on? What thing, what activity, what pursuit do the thoughts of your mind meander to when you're alone? could be a number of things. Maybe it's to go to work, get that business up, make a lot of money, climb the corporate ladder. Is that your pursuit? Is it to make a name for yourself, to be famous? Perhaps your pursuit and your thoughts, your desire is to go to the gym and get that buff body so when you walk around, of course, with your tank top, people will notice that you're really something, that carved out awesome body. Is your pursuit to lose 20 or 30 pounds? I've got an article for you. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe it's even to climb the ladder of ministry, become known in your church or your community as some great person, some great ministry. Why do I ask you those questions? Because it is always true that whatever you think of in your mind, wherever your thoughts are now, you are always moving in the direction of your thoughts. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, So is he. Though you might have certain extracurricular biblical activity, the pursuit of your mind, the concentration of your life, will determine the activity of your life. Daniel was preoccupied with prayer because he pursued it, he concentrated in his relationship with God. Now finally, and fourthly, look in verses uh, 3 through 5, Daniel's passion in prayer. 
He says to make requests by prayer and supplications, that strong cries, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking of verse 1 and then the verses we just read. He said it was in the year of Darius, and I looked up in chapter 6 and saw what Daniel was doing in that year and realized that Daniel was a real busy guy. He was in his 80s, but he occupied a government position. There were 120 governors, satraps, they called them, over the land. King Darius made three of them the big cheeses. And one was Daniel. Daniel was one of the guys that 120 governors of provinces had to give a governmental report, account, audit to. And then Darius wanted to promote Daniel to be numero uno, the big guy in charge of Babylon under himself. He occupied a busy schedule. And yet here, he's reading the Bible, and then he puts sackcloth on, perhaps ashes on his head, and he goes to fast. Here's a busy corporate executive, if you will, carving out time for his God. I bring that out because I have used the excuse, and I know many of you have used it, or perhaps are still using it. I'm too busy to pray like I'd like to. Well, then you're just flat too busy. Because Daniel believed, no matter how busy in the day, week, month it is, I need to humble myself before my God and seek His face and make it the passion of my life to pursue His God. Sackcloth, fasting, along here with ashes. What does this speak of? What's the sackcloth? Does that make him more spiritual? No, it just speaks of fervency. Fervency. James chapter 5 says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5.16 The effective, fervent, or literally red-hot prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, Jesus taught this, by the way. In Luke chapter 11, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he said, which one of you having a friend wouldn't go to him at midnight and ask him for loaves of bread, three loaves of bread because you have company? And if you went to your friend and asked him for the bread and he said, excuse me, my family's in bed, it's late, it's after midnight, bug off, go away. He wouldn't give them to you because you're his friend, but Jesus said, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Therefore, said Jesus, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. In Greek, it's a continual tense. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and the door will be open. It's persistence. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes spoke of Daniel's fervency. It's not the only time. Nehemiah put sackcloth on when he prayed. Job put ashes on when he prayed. Deuteronomy 9 speaks of fasting. Psalm 6, Psalm 12 speak of groaning and sighing in prayer. Now, the position of your body in prayer is not as important as the position of your heart. It's not that Daniel got extra points for putting on ashes. It wasn't like prayer fashion or anything. 
You know, sackcloth. You know, that looks good. Put a little green with that sackcloth, you'd be doing great. It just was a custom of the time to speak of fervency. So I don't think it matters if you stand, walk, or kneel, or bow, or have your hands raised in front of everybody else. It's the position of your heart. I love what that telephone repairman said to the three ministers who were discussing positions of prayer, which one was best. The repairman said, let me tell you guys something. The most effective prayer I've ever prayed is when I was dangling 40 feet off the ground from a wire. That was really meaningful prayer. It was born in extreme situations, and it was his pursuit. I don't know that you're going to remember all of the fine points that we have talked about. Knowing human nature as I do, I don't think you remember three-fourths of it. But if you would walk away remembering this one thing, it would be worth it. And that is your God loves to hang out with you. He just loves it when you call upon His name for prayer. Yes, on one hand, it's the greatest privilege for us, but it's a sheer joy for God. When you come and spend time with Him, you're not, God's not too busy for you. God won't say, Would you, I'm resting, or i got Billy Graham on the line, could you please hold? He's ready to answer your prayers. Make your relationship with God such that you're so intimate with Him that you pray, as Paul said, without ceasing. It just becomes the natural habit and flow of your life. I've got to take this before God. I'm living in the light of His presence. Let me conclude by telling you the story of an old Scotsman named Donald. He was dying. The family called for the minister to come in and speak with Donald on his deathbed. The minister came in, saw Donald lying there. Next to the bed on the right-hand side was another chair. The pastor occupied the one on the left side of the bed. An empty chair was on the right side next to the old man. The minister said, Hello, Donald. I'm here to see you, but I see that you've already had a visitor before I even got here this morning. And Donald knew that the pastor was referring to the empty chair. He said, Let me tell you about that chair, Reverend. When I was a young man, I had trouble praying. I didn't know what to say, how to say it. Should I stand, kneel, walk? I had a good friend who was a pastor, and he said, Donald, what you ought to do is sit down in a chair and pull a chair right in front of you and pretend Jesus is sitting in that chair and you're just looking at him and you're having a conversation and you're talking about everything that's on your heart. Just in that intimate term of a friend to a friend, pour your heart out. He said, I never forgot that. I've made it my practice ever since. When I want to talk to Jesus, I pull up his chair and I chat with him. Minister left. Two days later, got a phone call from Donald's daughter who said, Daddy died. I tucked him in bed the other night. He was sleeping soundly. He was fine. His arms were on his chest. I put the blanket up to his chin, left the room, expecting to wake up the next morning. I came into his room two hours later, and my father had died. She said, a strange sight, however. His right hand was leaned over in the seat of the chair on the right side of his bed. Strange, isn't it? minister said, no, I, I think I understand. He had lived in such communion with the Lord that the only difference between this life and the next life was that he saw God face to face at the moment of his death. God loves to spend time with you. Pull up a chair. 
Talk to him. Final closing comment. There is a prayer that must take place before you can enjoy any communion or fellowship with your God at all. And that's a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer of saying, Jesus, I know I am a sinner. And I ask you to wash me from my sins. I give my life to you. I present it to you. Take it. I ask you to become the Lord of my life. Take over everything. Take take me over. I turn from what I know is wrong. I turn to you. Take me as your child. I want to be your disciple. You've got to say something like that and mean that from your heart to even start with God. Because all roads do not lead to God like the one Jesus promised. Oh, all roads lead to God, but you'd be surprised on some of the roads when you get to God. It could be a time of judgment. But the first prayer is a prayer of repentance to come before Him and give your life to Him. For some of you, that prayer could be done right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your promises. And I pray that our communication with You would be enriched and be meaningful. That we'd love to pull up Your chair, speak to You as a man would speak to his friend, being prompted by the truth of the Word of God so that we're confident what we pray for is biblically based And we know it's according to your will. I pray that it would be filled with passion. We pursue as we give our concentration to you. That we lose dusty old phrases and that it would be a new time of communication. Tune us up. Father, for those who don't know you yet, I pray that today would be a time of saying that first prayer, the prayer of repentance that ushers you into their presence for a future time of relationship. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, quick minute, quick time. God has spoken to your heart and you know that you don't know Him, but you want to know Him and you want to give your life to Him. You want your sins forgiven. You want a new start. You want to be part of His family. I'd like you to raise your hand wherever you're sitting and say, Skip, here's my hand. Pray for me. I'm giving my life to Jesus this morning. Raise it up and keep it up. Hey, God bless you. Right over there to my left. And in the back. And over here to my left in the back. And right up here in the front. God bless you. Over here, a couple of you to the right. Anyone else? Over here to the right and back there. Right in the middle. Two of you. A couple rows separated. Anyone else? Back there. Father, we're so grateful. Back over here. We thank you, Father, for what you do in a heart and how you change a life. We can't do that. Only you can do it. I thank you, Lord, that these people who have raised their hand this morning have not just come to church. They've come to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that they would continue to grow in their relationship with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.